pray together. And as we pray, if you want to remain standing, if you want to sit, if you want to lift your hands in gratitude or just quietly listen as we go before the Lord, what makes it well with our soul today, of course, is what we've remembered and celebrated already, the death of Jesus Christ, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We were singing that line in the second or, or third verse. You know, I wonder if we really understand and believe what it means when, when it says, my sin, not in part but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. I'm not sure that we always believe that. We think we do bear it and we carry it and, and, and we dump it back on ourselves. It's not Jesus who dumps it back on us. We do it ourselves. But the reason it can be well with our soul this morning, and the reason we come together and sing, and the reason we can come together and enjoy and hope and say, today's the day you've made, and I will rejoice and be glad in it, is because Jesus did bear your sin, my sin, not in part, but the whole. Not just the stuff you did before you came to know him, but the stuff you did this morning. The stuff you'll do tomorrow that I will do. The ways we'll go our own way and do our own thing, and yet it's all been nailed to the cross. We bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Who will say, praise the Lord? Praise the Lord, O oh my soul. God, you are so good to us. We thank you for the cross. We thank you for Jesus Christ. And Father, as we turn our attention to your word, it's one of those things around here that we, we, Lord, we understand what we mean. We're just kidding when we call it coincidences, but it's one of those things today that the, the scripture that, that Kathy and the team chose to open with is the same scripture you had me in this morning early in Psalm 67, where the psalmist says, God, do be gracious to us and bless us. Lord, cause your face to shine upon us. And then the psalmist says, why? That your way may be known in the earth, the way of salvation, the way of the Lord, and your salvation among all the nations. And as I thought about that and the Lord brought it back to my attention, I realized that that right there is exactly why we are here today. We're here to make known the way of the Lord, that those of us who know his ways will be reminded and called and challenged to walk in them. And that those among us this morning who don't, that we will proclaim the salvation of the Lord to you. And so, Father, we pray that as we have gathered here in your name, as we've already come to the cross and remembered the sacrifice, as we've sung, praise the Lord all the earth, and we've sang, it is well with my soul, and we've said today is the day that you've made and will rejoice and be glad in it. Father, the only reason we can say those things, the only reason we can sing those things is because you sent us your son, and he laid down his life, and then he took it up again in victory. And Father, we stand before you this morning as grateful people, as humbled people, as people who understand, as, as Joel taught us and reminded us in communion, that the only good in us is, is Christ, but with the goodness of Christ, Lord, you see us as clean and perfect and acceptable in your sight. We are so grateful. Father, I pray that that peace and that assurance this morning, the assurance of forgiven sin, the assurance that, that it all was nailed to the cross and, and that you just want to show us the way to go and you've called us to proclaim your salvation, Lord, will allow us to, to listen to the preaching of your word with open hearts. Father, as always, it's not a preacher we've come to hear, and if we've, that's why we think we've come, we're selling ourselves far short. Father, we've come that through the, the instrument of preaching, through the, the practice of one of us speaking and the others listening, Father, we believe that with open Bibles and open hearts that your Spirit comes and He is the one who teaches us, and we invite Him to do that right now, the Spirit who lives within those of us who know Christ, that He would come and guide us in truth, that He would come and guard us from misunderstanding, that He would deliver us from apathy and pride and indifference and bitterness and regret and all of that stuff sweep it away so that as we open the word this morning father as always we might see jesus father i pray we'll see jesus clearly this morning in the preaching of the word i pray we'll see jesus only this morning in the same 
And when we leave in a little while, we will leave saying it's well with my soul and, and it's good to be in the house of the Lord, not because we came to church and sang songs that we like, not because the sermon was helpful in some way, but because we sat in the presence of Jesus, the one with nail-scarred hands and feet who did it for us, that we might know you. It's in his name we pray and in, for his glory as well, the name of Jesus. God's people then said, amen, amen. You may be seated. Again, good morning, and as you're taking your seats, we will... As always, dismiss the boys and girls for Children's Church. We've got children here this morning who want to be part of that. That's the five-year-olds to the second graders, and they're going to go have a good time listening to God's Word and studying God's Word, and hopefully we're going to do the same. Hopefully you'll be able to say the same by the time we're done. I want you to take your Bible out right now as, uh, as we just move and turn our attention to the Scriptures this morning, and I want to ask that as you do, as we continue, as it says on the screen behind me, to talk about and examine what the scriptures say happened after the empty tomb. I actually want you to turn not to one, but to two passages of scripture in your Bible this morning. The first place I want you to turn in the Bible as we uh, prepare to go to the Word is, is John chapter 20. And that's going to be our main text. That's where we're going to be spending the bulk of our time looking at another one of these post-resurrection appearances of Jesus Christ, John 20. But once you've found it, I want you to bookmark John 20, and then I want you to go back to the Old Testament to Psalm 29. John 20, bookmark it. We'll get back there and we'll park there when we do. But then I want you to go and as quickly as you can, make your way to Psalm 29 because that is where we are going to begin this morning. And hopefully, if I do my job to speak it clearly and you do your job of listening closely, I'll show you why these two fit together and why we're starting where we are this morning. Psalm 29 is where I want to read first. It's a psalm of of David. I don't want to read the whole thing. I'm going to read sort of the heart of it from verses 3 through 9. And as I read those verses, uh, Psalm 29, verses 3 through 9, I want you to listen, and you're going to find it quickly. It's not a mystery. It's not a secret. But I want you to listen to something that David the psalmist says over, something he refers to over and over and over again, because it is the link to then where we are headed in the New Testament in John chapter 20. So if you've got your Bible open to Psalm 29... I'm going to begin reading in verse 3. I'm going to go through verse 9. I want you to follow along and listen close to what the Word of God says. David writes, The voice of the Lord is upon the waters. The glory of God thunders. The Lord is over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is majestic. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. Yes, the Lord breaks in pieces the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord hews out flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer to calve and strips the forest bare. And in his temple, everything says glory. Psalm 29, what's the statement that's repeated over and over again? The what? The voice of the Lord. David is saying something to us about the voice of of the Lord. Now, if you, as you know, as we have, if you've been here the past couple of Sundays, as we've been going through God's word together here, sort of in the shadow of Easter, you know that what we have been doing, and if you have not been here, you need to know that since Easter Sunday came and went, we have been looking in God's word at some of the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us in the gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John that, that as many as a dozen times after dying on the cross and rising from the 
the dead, Jesus Christ appeared in the flesh to people who had followed him during his ministry. And, and our aim, as we look at a handful, we're not looking at all of them, we're looking at five actually, in fact, five of these post-resurrection appearances of Jesus Christ, our aim has been to see what makes each one unique. What was Jesus, what lesson or message or truth was he conveying in, in this post-resurrection appearance as to the one that came later or maybe the one that we will look at next week? Because I just have this hunch and I've been sharing it with you over the past couple of Sundays that Jesus had something special to say each time he showed up. Something more than simply, I'm back, which of course he was saying, but I'm back and here's what you need to know. Here's what I want to impress upon you. And the reason we're doing that is because I have set the thought before you, really it's become a conviction of mine, that while as Christians we all know and believe Jesus rose, if we don't we're not Christians, right? We know and believe that Jesus rose, we are looking to see what difference it makes that Jesus lives. And that he lives and he is living just as much today as he was back on Resurrection Sunday morning. And when we're picking the story up this morning, this is now, you can turn with me to John chapter 20. When we're picking the story back up today, what you need to know, and I promise I'm going to connect these dots here in just a moment, it's still, though for us it's been three weeks since Resurrection Sunday, this is still Resurrection Sunday in the Gospel of John. It's still the day on which Jesus rose from the dead. And what we've seen the past couple of Sundays together is throughout that day, Jesus kept showing up. Word had spread to many of his followers that he'd risen from the dead, but he had actually appeared in the flesh to a few of them, to some women at the tomb, to, as we saw last week, to two disciples of his uh, walking on the road to Emmaus. He's appeared to several of his followers already, but now night has fallen. It's the end of Resurrection Sunday. And what the Bible tells us is that all of those to whom he had already appeared, and it seems to be, according to the text, many more, perhaps most of the disciples, many others who had followed him during his ministry, they are all together. The news that, that, that Jesus had risen from the dead, whether they had seen him or not, had drawn them together into a room which may well have been the very same room where a few nights earlier they'd had the Last Supper, back in this same familiar place. As we dig into what happened in that, perhaps in the upper room, on the night of the day in which Jesus rose from the dead, there's something important I want you to understand before we read it, and it's this, and this is the connection to Psalm 29. It is that the voice which was referred to in Psalm 29, the voice of the Lord, and it said the voice of the Lord does some pretty awesome stuff, right? Hews out flames of fire, it shakes the mountains in the wilderness, it strips the forest bare, right? The voice of the Lord is a really big deal. It's a really powerful thing. Here's what I want you to understand before we read John chapter 20. The same voice is speaking here. Perhaps not in the same way, but it is the same voice. The voice of the Lord that can shake all of creation is the voice that will be speaking in this Scene. We're beginning in John 20, verse 19, and going down through verse 29, this is what the Word of God says that when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, again, Resurrection Sunday, and when the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and spoke to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. And the disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them. And he said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. 
If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were saying to him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand in his side, I will not believe. And after eight days, his disciples were again inside and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors having been shut and stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach here with your finger and see my hands, and reach here your hand, and put it into my side, and do not be unbelieving, but believing. Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord, my God. Jesus said to him, because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see, and yet believed. Now, despite most of the sermons I've ever heard, and a couple of which I have given on this text before, Let me make one thing clear before we begin to dig in and take it apart, and it's this, that Jesus, not Thomas, is the main character in this story, all right? Thomas gets the most screen time. He gets more than he gets anywhere else, as far as I can tell, anywhere in the New Testament. This is the most we learn of this particular disciple, this particular follow of Jesus Christ, but he is not, everybody say, he's not the main character because the reason he is not is because while his life may be the one that is most personally and dramatically dealt with here, it's not the only one Jesus deals with here. Because when Jesus shows up and begins speaking, everybody's life begins to change. When the voice of the Lord enters into this particular room where his people were gathered, all sorts of changes began taking place. And in the time we have left, I want to show you three of them. Three ways that when the risen Christ came and spoke, people's lives began to be changed. We'll just take them in the order they come. The first one's in verses 19 and 20. And it is this, that when the risen Christ came and he spoke, when the voice of Jesus entered into the gathering of his people, in that, again, perhaps the upper room, the first thing that happened is fear gave way to joy. The first thing that happened when the risen Christ spoke is fear gave way to joy. Because, you know, despite all that they had experienced that day, and some of them experienced a lot, some of them had seen Jesus alive already. Several of them had. And the word had gotten around, and again, it was word that Jesus was alive, that perhaps the main thing that had brought them together. If you look at verse 9, even so, even though, 19, even though all that's true, you know what the prevailing mood of the room was? Fear. Even though some of them had seen Jesus. That's what the Bible says. It was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. And and the reason they were afraid is because the Jews, that was sort of, everybody in those days knew that was a generic reference to the religious authorities. The ruling, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the high priests and all these guys who were foremost in in an earthly sense responsible for sending Jesus to the cross. And whether Jesus was alive or not, what they knew is that the way the world works is once they took him out, they were coming after them next because they were his followers and they might try to, of course, they believed. You read the Gospels. They they thought they were worried, the religious authorities, were that the disciples might keep the, the idea that Jesus had risen from the dead alive. And so they're thinking they took care of him. Doesn't matter if they think he's alive or not. They're coming for us. They were in this room in a spirit of fear. But then what happened? Look at your Bible. 
When it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, when the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came. And he stood in their midst and he said to them, peace be with you. Now that word peace is a really cool word. Because in the original language of that, it doesn't simply mean the absence of conflict. It doesn't simply mean everybody's playing nice with each other. The word for peace here in the original context throughout the scriptures means not just the absence of strife or conflict, but that it encompasses the ideas of harmony and security and of safety and of contentment and of rest and about a half dozen other things that we could talk about as well. First and foremost in relationship with God, but also it spills over into our relationships with each other. It's, a, it's an all-around sense, an all-encompassing sense of well-being. And, and when here's what I want you to see. When Jesus said it, and note, look at your Bible, it's the only thing he says. He doesn't give them a sermon. He doesn't give them three points and a big idea. He doesn't illustrate anything in any way. He simply says, in English, four words. I don't know what it was in Greek. I forgot. Four English words. Peace be with you. And their fear gave way to joy. When he said this, He showed them his hands and his side, and the disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Why? Because as overly simplistic as it sounds, he came to them personally, spoke to them directly, simply showed up and said, I'm here. And the fact that I'm here is enough. And because he was the Son of God who was risen from the dead, it really was enough. I mean, listen, somebody comes back from the dead, you're going to pay attention to him, right? You're going to do what they say. And they understood in that moment who he was and, and what he has done. And, and we look at that and go, well, that's great for them. What about us? Well, here's the, here's the really cool secret. Same goes for us. What he did for them in that moment by showing up and speaking and causing their fear to give way to joy, he still does for us today. Because here, let me ask you a question, and it's not a trick question. How does God speak to his people today? In his what? His word, we all agreed on that, right? It is a living word. God speaks to us in his word. His spirit applies it to our hearts. Do you have God's word? Yeah, we do. And he speaks to us through his word. And you know what his word says about this very thing, about fear and joy and the relationship between the two? And believe me, I spent a lot of time thinking on this one. Dealt with it a lot in my own life. Here's some of what the Bible says. The word, the living word of God, Psalm 1611. You don't need to turn there. You might want to write it down. In your presence. In other words, where Jesus is, where the Lord is, there is fullness of joy. Full, not some. Fullness of joy. In his right hand there are pleasures forever. Psalm 31, 19. When I am afraid, I will put my trust in you. In God whose word I praise, I have put my trust, and then I shall not be afraid, because what can mere man do to me? You see the the connection, the correlation here? I put my trust in the Lord. I trust that when he speaks, he means what he says, and fear gives way to joy, and then I praise him. Proverbs 133, all who listen to me will live in peace, untroubled by the fear of harm. And so we weren't there in the upper room, but you know what? No big deal. Because what do we have? We have his word, and we have his spirit. 
Joel's whole message in communion, because Jesus Christ died, the Spirit of God lives within you, lives within me. We have the same things. We have his word, and we have his spirit, his presence, and that means that he can do the same thing with our fears, even though we weren't there on Resurrection Sunday night. And as such, I'm going to give you an opportunity to trade your fears for joy right now. And I'm not going to do it any other way than we're not going to have anybody stand up and pray. Nobody's going to do anything from the front. We're simply just going to take a couple of moments, 30 seconds. We're going to do this with each of the three things we look at in this passage this morning and just quietly, prayerfully in our hearts respond to it. Because here's what I thought, okay? And this is probably not a new thought, but it was kind of a, a meaningful one to me. I thought, you know, when Jesus did this, when Jesus walked into the room on Resurrection Sunday night and said, peace be with you, and everybody traded their fear for joy, here's what I'm pretty sure didn't happen. That all the disciples gathered in the room took out their notebooks and Jesus said, peace be with you. And they went, ooh, Jesus said, peace be with That's the big idea. Peace be with you. And then they closed their notebooks and said, good one, Jesus. We'll be back next Sunday for another one. That doesn't change anything. You can have a notebook full of big ideas and memory verses and all that stuff. But if you don't respond to it, nothing changes. They were changed because they responded. So let's respond. What do I mean? I mean, just for a moment. And if this is your preferred style, you just bow your head. And in a minute, I'm going to be quiet and simply allow you, because some of us, I know for a fact, carried in some fears with us this morning. There's stuff we're afraid of. There's stuff we're worried about. There's stuff we're burdened by. And Jesus has come to me. What am I saying? I'm saying simply acknowledge. Lord Jesus, this morning, I bring you my fear of. Lord Jesus, this morning, I bring you my fears about, and I exchange them for your joy. And that's what he does. He takes our fear away. What did he say? When I'm afraid, I'll put my trust in you and God, whose word I praise. So just as I'm quiet for a moment, in your own words, silently, no one else is going to hear what you say. This is just you and the Lord, and he hears all of us equally at the very same time. Lord Jesus, I confess, I give you my fear of, if you've got fear this morning, and I want to exchange it for your joy, would you bring it to me right now? Jesus, you know that we are no different from these disciples. Father, some of us, for a precious few, fear is not something that rules our lives, but for many of us, it's there all the time, and it comes in all sorts of ways, day and night. But you're bigger than our fears. You know our fears. What we see in this passage is you are pleased, Lord, we see in the Psalms, to take our fears away from us and give your joy and your peace in its place. Father, thank you that even in this moment, though it's not the conventional way sermons are done, we can stop right now and say more than, that's a good point, Jesus, but hey, Jesus, I need you to do that for me. Thank you, Father, that in your presence, fears are exchanged for joy, that when Jesus speaks, and that's all it takes, that's exactly what can happen, and we can be, once again, set free. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. So that's the first thing. The first thing that happened when Jesus, when the risen Christ spoke, he walked into the room, he said four words in our Bibles, and everybody's fear got exchanged for joy, but it's not the only thing. There's a second thing that happened in the next couple of verses. Starting in verse 21, and then in verses, continuing in verses 22 and 23, when Jesus showed up and, and then a second time spoke, the second time in this scene when the risen Christ spoke, not only were fears giving way to joy, but secondly, followers became ambassadors. The second time in this room Jesus Christ spoke, followers became 
ambassadors. Now, in our country, I don't know how it works anywhere else, and if you've paid attention, we've been in a season of this with a new administration. When someone is called upon to be an ambassador for our nation, this is very a general overview of how it works, what happens is the president decides who it is that they want to represent us to be an ambassador to a certain land. They take that person's name and they give it to a committee of senators. Those senators then take that name and that person and their file and they review it, and if they agree that the president's made a good call, they forward it on to the entire Senate who vote whether or not this person is going to be our next ambassador to nation X or Y or Z or whatever. And, and throughout the process, those involved essentially, and understand I'm simplifying, but you see what I'm saying here when I say it, there's one fundamental question they are grappling with. And it's this, is this person, is this man, this woman, the best possible individual to represent our interests in another land? Will this person speak, act, conduct themselves in a way that if, in the president's case, I myself were there, will they represent our interests? And will that be their main priority? Are they equipped with the skills and the temperament and the experience and the knowledge to stand before others on our behalf? Is he or she the right person to be our ambassador? Well, in John chapter 20, look at your Bible, the next couple of verses, In Jesus' view, this bunch huddled in the upper room moments earlier in fear were his people, were the best qualified people to take his message, his gospel of salvation to the world. And you know what? I find that astonishing. I find that stunning. Because although this bunch, most in this bunch, however many there were, in that room that night when Jesus showed up, though most of them had followed him around for three and a half years, they'd hung on his every word, they'd seen his every miracle, they knew all his sermons by heart. For three and a half years, they'd followed him around. What else do we know about this bunch? The same bunch, three and a half days earlier, they scattered like rats before sunlight when Jesus was arrested. They all abandoned him. Their leader, Peter, denied him. And, and nothing's changed. I mean, that's the last, the last time they were with Jesus. That's what went down. And yet Jesus shows up in this room on that night and in verse 21 says to them, the second thing he says, peace be with you, in case you missed it the first time, peace be with you as the Father has sent me, I also send you. Isn't there some sort of training class? <laughs> There's some sort of seminar, Jesus, we should go to? We need to have a, a, a meeting? To, as the Father sent me, I know. You guys, gals, are the best possible people I can find to represent my interests in a fallen land and in a broken world. And then after issuing that assignment, that's what he does in verse 21. He gave him his spirit in verse 22. Now, the spirit would come fully at Pentecost several weeks later. But it says, and this is a weird verse, it's one of the, the next or two of the most difficult verses in John's gospel to understand, but it says, when he said this, he breathed on them, and he said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Now, there's a lot about that I don't understand, all right? I'm just going to tell you right up front. But it pictures something that I think is helpful. Because when God made the world, Genesis 1, 2, 3, and he made man out of the dust of the earth, And he made Adam, and he formed him, and he got him just the way out of the dust of the earth, the way that he wanted him, and and he was done. What does the Bible say the Lord did? The Lord 
breathed into him the breath of life, and he lived, gave him physical life, the breath of the Lord. This has just taken that whole thing to another level. You're my people, and you were one thing. (laughs) You were, I mean, they were the equivalent of dirt, denying him, running from him three days earlier. But then he comes in spiritually, does the same thing. It's a mirror image. He says, receive the Holy Spirit. In other words, you're going to have everything you need. I am breathing into you spiritual life, new life that you might represent me. So he gives them the assignment. He then entrusts them with his spirit. And then in verse 23 as well, he then gives them his authority, the authority to do what he did through the cross and the resurrection. Verse 23 says, and again, this is a challenging verse. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. Jesus is not saying, everybody say he's not saying. He's not saying that they or anyone else have the power to forgive sin or to hold people's sin against them in condemnation. That's what it looks like, but the the proper, if I understand correctly, the proper understanding of what Jesus is saying here is he is authorizing them. He is giving them the authority to say that if you believe the message we preach, you are saved. No hesitation, no exclusion, no exception, no doubt about it. And if you reject the message we preach, you are lost. The world doesn't like it, but that's the way it is. I am giving you the authority to say to someone, if you've trusted Jesus, it's all good. And if you reject Jesus, you've got a real problem, an eternal problem. And when he did that, when he gave them their assignment, his spirit and his authority, when the risen Christ spoke, again, all it said, peace I leave with you as a father has sent me, I also send you, receive the Holy Spirit. Followers became ambassadors. Just because Jesus spoke, followers became ambassadors. And guess what? Some of you know right where I'm going with this. Same goes for us. Same goes for us, because in 2 Corinthians 5.20, again, you don't need to turn there, but I would encourage you to write it down and remember it. In 2 Corinthians 5.20, the apostle Paul, who himself said, of all the least qualified people, I'm the worst to speak for Jesus because of who I was and what I did before I met him. He says, we, everybody say we, because you're in the we if you know Jesus Christ. We are ambassadors for Christ. God pleading through us be reconciled to him. You, if you know Christ, you are an ambassador. There's a badge with your name on it that says ambassador somewhere in heaven, and that is your assignment every bit as much as it was theirs or it is mine. We are ambassadors for Christ, calling people to be reconciled to God. In other words, what Jesus is saying here to them through us is it's our job to proclaim salvation to others. And as you've probably heard before, there's no plan B. Either we do it or it doesn't get done. Either we preach Christ or people remain lost. And I think that's another reality that doesn't demand a response sometime on Tuesday afternoon, but perhaps right now. So again, we're just going to take a moment before we move to the third thing here and just pause for prayer. Just silent prayer. If you want to bow your head, you don't have to. And I'm not telling you what to do. I'm simply setting an opportunity before you. Because some of us as believers... We've just never taken this seriously. Somebody else will do it. I don't have the gift, right? Jesus didn't say, do you have the gift? He said, you are my ambassadors. Receive the Holy Spirit. Go tell them, plead with them to trust Christ. And I think maybe some of us this morning, we simply need, and I know I have been in this boat many, many times to say, Lord Jesus, I 
I repent of my refusal to accept that assignment, and, and today I acknowledge that I am and desire to be your ambassador. Others of us, we've done it before, but walked away from it. We've gotten frustrated. People don't listen. They don't want to know. They don't want to hear. Jesus never said there was a, an opt-out clause that, you know, 10 people reject you. You can stop. And, and some of us here this morning, we've just never thought about it at all. I have a responsibility to do what someone once did for me to share the good news of salvation through Jesus Christ. So just again, I'm done for a moment here. Just invite you to say, maybe it's, maybe it's very more, more specific. Lord Jesus, make me an ambassador too. And there's some specific people to my workplace, to my classroom, to my kids, to my loved ones. So maybe it's simply I need to acknowledge my role as ambassador. Maybe it's, Lord, make me an ambassador too. Just for a moment, respond to that. I trust that the Spirit will lay on your heart what you need to know. Lord, every day you put people in our path who don't know Christ. We all know the tension of, should I speak or should I not? And Lord, it's not always the right time, but more often than, than we'd like to think it is. It's an incredible blessing you've given us, an incredible calling to say you are my ambassadors. Father, help us to take that assignment seriously, to respond to it in faith, trusting that it's not our job to get anybody saved, it's simply to tell them the way and to assure them that if they believe, they are in fact saved and that if they refuse, they are in fact lost. Father, would you cause us to embrace the role of ambassadors for Christ to a needy world? In Jesus' name. So the first time the risen Christ spoke, fear gave way to joy. The second time the risen Christ spoke, followers became ambassadors. Jesus speaks one more time in this passage. It's the last thing we're going to look at here this morning in verses 24 through 29. And, and for some of us here this morning, it's going to be the most important because it's this. The third time that the risen Christ spoke, unbelief was exchanged for faith. Unbelief was exchanged deliberately for faith. You know, when we read this story, and again, many of us know the story of Thomas well. We've heard it before. Others of us haven't. That's okay. But you know what we don't know from the text, because it doesn't say, no matter how hard you dig, is why Thomas was absent Resurrection Sunday night. It just says that he was. The text also, we don't know from it, why Jesus waited and made Thomas wait a whole week to show up again with Thomas present among them. The Bible doesn't say it. It doesn't say why on both of those occasions that they're almost mirror images, almost everything about them is exactly the same of the way Jesus came. None of that is found in the text. But you know what we do know from the text? And we know it clearly from the text, and there's no mistaking about it. It's this, that for 2,000 years, Thomas has gotten a bad rap as a doubter. All right, for 2,000 years, people have been messing with his reputation and getting it wrong because Thomas's problem here, can I tell you, was not doubt. It wasn't doubt at all. And frankly, we should do all we can to stop the smears, all right? Let's stop messing around with his name. He's not a doubter. Actually, his problem was much worse. Doubt is maybe, maybe not. I'm not sure, but I'll think about it. The Bible doesn't say Thomas's problem was doubt. Thomas's problem, verse 25, was unbelief. The other disciples were saying to him, we have seen the Lord, but he said to them, unless I, here's his list, I see in his hands the imprint of the nails, I put my finger in the place of the nails, and I put my hand into his side, I'm just going to keep thinking it over. <laughs> no, I will not believe. And, you know, maybe we shouldn't be too hard on him, because that probably would have been you and me as well. I mean, you guys got your story, but I'd like to see it too. Whatever the case, his problem is unbelief. 
And, and so when Jesus shows up in verse 27, that's exactly how he deals with them. In verse 26, he comes, the doors are shut. Jesus shows up, Thomas is with them. He says again, peace be with you. Then verse 27, he said to Thomas, reach here with your finger and see my hands. Reach here your hand and put it into my side. And do not be unbelieving. Literally stop being an unbeliever and believe. To which Thomas says, greatest confession of faith, my Lord and my God. And notice, if you will, for a third time, all Jesus had to do was speak. All Jesus had to do was speak. He gave Thomas the opportunity to do exactly what Thomas insisted had to happen, put his hands here to see the scars, hand in his side, all the rest. Jesus gave him that opportunity, but once Jesus spoke, he didn't need it anymore. That was enough. Because in that moment, what did Thomas realize? Jesus Christ, he believed. He really is the Son of God who really did die for our sins, who really did rise from the dead. He really is my Lord and my God. And when Jesus said, stop being an unbeliever and believe, that's what he did. Because when the risen Christ spoke, all of those demands seemed awfully inconsequential, awfully irrelevant, because he's here. And that's enough. And you know, once more I'd ask, just as we sort of pull this together, what about you? Because it would be foolish of me to believe that all of us here today understand this. Maybe you've never heard the message of the gospel before. Maybe you've heard it countless times before, but you've never taken that step of stopping being an unbeliever and trusting Christ. And maybe it's because, like Thomas, you've got questions, right? Well, until I have this question answered, I can't believe Until I figure this thing out, I can't believe. Many of us have been there. Many of you have walked that path of until I get this answered, I can't trust that. Yet perhaps you've known the feeling, and maybe you know it even now, of Jesus speaking to your heart, saying it's time to make a decision. The burning heart that the disciples on the Emmaus Road last week felt. And you've got a decision to make. You've got a choice to make with those questions. Listen, I'm not saying your questions are irrelevant. I'm certainly not saying your questions are dumb. Some of them are very meaningful, very significant questions. But what I am saying and what I am going to urge you to consider and plead with you to think about, if that's where you are, is not to let the question of whether or not God made the earth in six literal days... The question of whether or not the Israelites really did cross the sea on dry land. The question of whether or not God did flood the whole world. The question of whether or not a man really lived three days and nights in the belly of a whale and got spit back out and a whole town got saved. Keep you from God's free gift of salvation. Not to let those questions be the reason you refuse like Thomas to believe and spend, listen, and end up spending eternity in a place where you'll get your answer, but you won't get him. Right? We don't want that to happen to anybody in this house today. Stop being an unbeliever and believe. One more time, we're just going to pause to pray, and then we'll give you the big idea, and we'll be done. So that anyone here this morning who needs to, because they are in the situation Thomas was in, can answer Jesus' call to stop being an unbeliever and believe. And by the way, don't miss verse 29. Jesus said, Thomas, you've seen me and you've believed. Blessed are those who did not see and yet believe. That is, if you make the choice today that Thomas made, you're more blessed than he is because you didn't get to see Jesus in the flesh. So let's bow our heads one more time. And there's one of two things. If you've not trusted Christ, this is your opportunity, your moment, just in the quietness of your heart to say, my Lord and my God. That's all Thomas said. He was saved because he understood who Jesus was and what Christ had done for him. 
And for the rest of us, it's an opportunity to say, <laughs> who do I know that needs that? Who can I pray for that they will stop being an unbeliever? And believe if you need Christ today, just in your heart, you just, in silence, but to him, Lord Jesus, save me. And for the rest of us, Lord Jesus, save whoever it is. Father, we understand that the power of the gospel can change any heart. Thomas, Paul, me, each one of us. And that the gospel that Jesus proclaimed on Resurrection Sunday is the same gospel we proclaim here today. And Father, it's not that our questions don't matter and our, our disputes and our concerns aren't important. It's just that they're keeping us from the most important decision through which we can come to realize the truth of your word. Father, we pray for anyone in this room who needs to or even in this moment has surrendered to Christ, that you will fill them with the assurance of eternal life, of your love for them that will never be taken away. Because when Jesus Christ speaks, fear gives way to joy. When Jesus Christ speaks, followers become ambassadors. When Jesus Christ speaks, unbelief can be exchanged for faith. You know, something I've said to you just as we maybe open our eyes here one more time before we close, I've said to you many times before from this spot, and others have said it too, that it is impossible to truly encounter Christ and remain unchanged, right? You can't meet Jesus. You can't meet the risen Christ and be the same person you were after the fact that you were before. The change may be incremental or it may be astronomical. It may be to believe and it may be to reject. Not everybody who met Jesus got saved. Many walked away, but they were not the same people they were when they met him because they'd made a decision. Even those of us who know him, every time the scripture is open and God's word is set before us, it's an encounter with Christ that is intended to change us, and it does. It draws us closer to him or it pushes us farther from him. In other words, what I'm saying to you, and this is the big idea of this morning's message, it's simply this, and hopefully it's clear in what we've just seen here, that we are never the same once Jesus speaks. As people, men, women, children, we are never the same once Jesus speaks. So let's be sure that we're listening to his voice. And that before we walk out those doors, we've responded to whatever he is saying to our hearts. And Father, for that reason, I ask, as we do every Sunday, but maybe more than I do any Sunday, that you would take the things of truth and impress them deeply on our hearts that have been shared here, and take the stuff that doesn't matter and not let it be a distraction or get in the way, because it only matters that we see Jesus it only matters that we hear Jesus, and it only matters that we respond to Jesus. Not that we get our three points and our big idea written down, but that we respond to the voice of the risen Christ who died and rose to satisfy you, but who died and rose just as much to save us. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the cross. We thank you that the tomb in which he was laid is still empty this morning. May we live and continue living in the reality that fact as we go from here in Jesus' name. Amen.